Hey, welcome to the NATO Sessions. I'm NATO Green. On this edition of the NATO Sessions, my guest is writer and graphic novelist Gerard Jones. Join me on stage at Stageworks Theater in San Francisco as I introduce Gerard Jones. Hey, everybody. How you doing? I'm NATO Green. Welcome to the NATO Sessions, where uh, I talk to famous smart people. And so uh, Gerard Jones is the first guest. And uh, I was an avid comic book collector from about the fourth to the tenth grade. Uh, I was a comic book reader and also a collector. Uh, so, and I had lots of ritual and superstition about that practice. Uh, and uh, I was pleased to discover that, that a comic book writer that I followed from title to title in that period then ended up living in San Francisco writing nonfiction about other things. Uh, which is Gerard. And then he wrote this wonderful book, Men of Tomorrow, about the history of comic books. Um, and so I want to talk to him about his work, and particularly we're going to talk a lot about comic books. Um, so, uh, and Gerard, so he wrote Men of Tomorrow, fantastic history of comic books, uh, and he wrote uh, some Batman, some Justice League, The Shadow, uh, The Trouble with Girls, uh, 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 Wonder Man. Uh, and uh, which is a joke by itself, um, and uh, not, not in any way related to Wonder Woman, and also uh, not Gerard's fault, but not necessarily that good of a character. Um, and uh, I guess I could have said no when they asked. But. Yeah, right. Um, so uh, I'm I'm psyched out to him. Thanks for thanks for joining me. Um, so obviously, the first question is from the point of view of comic books. What is the most important death, Ebert, Thatcher, or Funicello? Mm. Mm. That's, a, that's a big one. I'm thinking Annette, actually. And, and why is that? She just somehow was the soul of junk culture <laughs> in a way that the others never quite managed. Ebert was maybe a little too smart. Uh-huh. Thatcher, Thatcher was good material. Uh, yeah, I was going to say. There were some uh, English writers who used her I, well. I, I feel like yeah. Thatcher inspired V for Vendetta. Okay. Yeah, oh, yeah, I think so, definitely. Alan Moore definitely had a Thatcher thing. Alan's an English writer who wrote really interesting, surprising, edgy comics in the 80s. Kind of changed the whole business. Very much coming from that angry, working-class, Midlands, British place. So... Okay. So he had reasons to hate her. Okay. Now, maybe I'm just too oriented to old comics. You know, All right. I'm looking back too far. And, uh, and so you were a comic book writer for how long? My peak period, I guess, was 87 to 95, and then the little stuff dribbling after that. But that was, yeah, that was the core, that eight years and before I burned out. You burned out. And, and then went into, did you go directly from there into writing books? Or no. was there a, was there a, a stopping ground? There was Possibly a, as a barista? There was an interlude. No, similar though. I wrote screenplays for a while. I got paid to write them, but none got made. So I've got this interesting set of scripts, these, these little stacks of paper with words on them that were paying my rent for a while, but didn't absolutely nothing to show for it. Except for, you know, if people believe me when I say that, I think half the time they don't. But that was the, that was the stepping stone, and then that was not working for me. I, I, I checked. Your, your, you have nothing on your IMDb page as a screenwriter. Uh, no, I think, I, have, I think I'm there as a talking head on you're a couple the, of documentaries. Self. Yeah. Oh, and I, one of the comics I wrote got turned into a cartoon. So those, <laughs> those are my IMDb. I don't know if that's even on IMDb. 
thing called uh, Ultra Force. I don't know that we remember Ultra Force, but yeah. Um, but yeah, that was it for a while, but that wasn't working. Um, and then the books... Actually, I was writing nonfiction earlier. I was writing nonfiction before comics. I think a lot, half of me was always about that. Um, when I was uh, a young thing, I was torn between staying in college and doing the history degree or dropping out of college and being the freelance writer. And I chose the dropping out and freelance writer. And, but I think I always felt like I was going to write something about wait, wait, cultural wait, history. Which college did you drop out of? Uh, Gavilan Junior College. That's as far as I got. I got about a year and a half of junior college. Does anyone really drop out of junior college? You just sort of fade out. <laughs> <laughs> I made a decision, though. I said, I am now ending this part of my life, and I'm getting a job in writing. So, in that sense. You didn't just happen to stop re-enrolling? No, I had a, big, I had a moment. I had a, I had a moment of decision. Yeah. And, and how long did it take you to get the hang of uh, superhero Overly expository speech patterns. Oh, man. Like, did you did you go through a period of being like, you know, they, they, these other people don't know about my the mutant power that I acquired from the irradiated Biscotti? Yeah. I just, you know, I usually let the editors rewrite that stuff in. Um, that never came easily. I had written I had written parodies of superheroes before that. I did some humor writing, and so I was good at making fun of that kind of writing. And so, but trying to shift gears into seriously doing that was really hard. So my writing tended to be more naturalistic and minimal, and they had to you know, push me to remind what happened last month. Because that's the thing, especially at Marvel. DC was a little bit easier. Marvel, though, was very strict then about you have to enable everyone entering at each month to know what happened before. So you have to do these cute little summaries as you go. And did you have to write the, like, you know, see last issue captions kind of thing. No, that stuff they tacked on. Yeah, that was all of them. And they even had kind of a standard little blurb they'd stick on. So, right. Um, yeah, I mostly got to do the the meat of the story, which was really fun for a while. I really liked superheroes at first. Um, it was a hard genre to stay with long term for me. Uh, I know some guys who've been doing it forever, and they still seem to like it. But I think I just got to where I had done those stories a few times, and. Uh, I guess the, f- the fascination of doing new variations on superheroes wasn't great enough for me. So, Do you, did you figure out, like, when you approach some established character, whether it's Batman or Green Lantern, did you figure out some system for yourself of how to, how to bring your perspective to, to a character that people already had a relationship with? Yeah, I tried. And it was interesting because it's so collaborative. Uh, the editors are so involved in, in those company-owned characters. So it was very much... This is what I can bring, and the editor would say, "No, we don't want that. Maybe this." And you know, we'd sort of go back and forth. But I did try to find the things that I was really interested in because I did have some sense that I don't want to be just another superhero writer, um, another interchangeable writer. And I didn't, uh, like I say, I didn't have the passion. I liked doing it; it was different. But I didn't have this. I've wanted to write superheroes my whole life sort of passion that I think the most successful guys do. Um, and did you did you have some uh, process of like making a transition from being like like a like a fan person because you were you were a comic reader before right. you and so was there a transition of becoming going from being a fan to being a creator like did you have to write yourself hate mail? <laughs> oh, I didn't think of that. I, li- <laughs> I like that. If I do, if I try to get back in the business, I'm going to do that. Um, the transition for me was actually writing about comics because a friend of mine and I, uh, Will Jacobs, and I wrote a book called The Comic Book Heroes. It was kind of a history of modern superhero comics. 
because we were both fans. We both had some interest in nonfiction writing. I was the main nonfiction guy in that. But um, that's what attracted attention from editors and comics fans. So that was kind of a like this intellectual overview, which in a way I then kind of had to unlearn because I had to get more visceral. I had to get in. But I didn't have to do the whole you know, up from fandom thing, because I was also writing for National Lampoon at the time, which looked like a good, you know, it was a good resume item in the comics business. So I was able to kind of come in as this quasi-established writer from another field, or two other fields. And uh, what's, what's sort of, what's interesting about, about writing uh, in, a, in a medium where you have a there's a fan community that you have to reckon with and you can answer to. I liked that a lot, actually. Um, it, 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 like I say, it's a collaborative form. Unless you're an artist who also does his or her own stories and dialogue and edits, it's it's an innately you know group thing. So the fans were just sort of like another part of the collaborative group, and uh, they were the ones who would show up later. I mean, we would do the stuff and send it out, and then they'd respond. But I like that. I like that energy. I like that back and forth. I did a lot of comic book conventions then. I was talking to fans. Um, I didn't mind negative comments too much. You know, I mean, nobody likes them, but uh, I, I don't know. I just kind of took them as corrective suggestions. Maybe go this way a little bit more. Um, and I knew I was not going to be one of the big fan favorites. I just got that early. I had a weird approach, and so I was going to have to find you know people like you who liked what I was doing. Um, and this is even this, a little bit more damaged than the regular comic yeah, fans. Yeah, you know, but I, that, that, those were my people. Um, so that was I like that. I liked fans. I like um, I like even when my books come out and people respond, which you know, especially now in the uh, the internet age, that that happens. You know, it used to be just letters would trickle in, like a year after my book came out, these sort of hand scrawled letters would find their way in. But now there's a lot of response out there. Um, so I do like that. Uh, and, and, and is there anyone in the comic book world who is like seen by other by comic book writers or as like the laughingstock black sheep of the comic book world? Like, do, do the rest of the comic book business like look down on ElfQuest, for example? No, I think ElfQuest is seen as, if nothing else, historically important. Um, they were one of the first self-published. You know, sort of cottage industry comics from that period. That was not really. That was an incredibly exciting period, uh, early eighties in comics. And if you don't know, I, there's an Elfquest is another series that I was damaged enough to be a big fan of. Mm. Uh, that was started out in the late seventies, and the original arc of it ran into the mid eighties. I think. Yeah, and it was this period. It's hard to get it if you weren't there, but it was this period when comics shifted from being. These entirely sort of company-produced, faraway products that would go to drugstores and supermarkets, and became this sort of fan-created product that uh, was often very, you know, really small readerships and esoteric approaches, sold in comic shops, which were a new thing in the '70s. So just watching that shift. So even I actually never cared for ElfQuest. I have to say <laughs> but um, it, it, st- stylistically it stylistically it's like it's like Lord of the Rings goes to Age of Aquarius it's sort of it's that's the kind of vibe yeah yeah with kind of a cutesy thing happening um, but uh, but that was you know we looked at them and said okay these people are actually creating an audience that didn't used to exist and they're making a living doing entirely their own thing without this corporate interference and 
So, okay, so I don't know. Who's a laughing... I actually, I think, I, unfortunately, the laughing stocks become those of us who burnt out and kept going a little too long. Um, you know, there are these sort of rotating laughing stocks who we all end up being after a while. Um, I know when I, when I was cocky and young, I would make fun of the old burnouts. But then after six or seven years, I'd say, oh, yeah, I'm doing that too. I'm, used, I'm taking the same shortcuts. I'm doing the same recycling. So... That is uh, not in any way like comedy. Mm, certainly not. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, there was, there was a time in my life where, like, whenever I went to visit family in some city, I had to go and check out that city's comic book store mm. and was, like, mining for back issues. And the This is, like, late 80s? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, something you, you did a little bit more recently, uh, you looked at Batman and you said, uh, Batman has faced all manner of sociopath. Uh, the villain he hasn't had to deal with yet is rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Um, so you wrote uh, Batman Fortunate Son, which is a Batman story that's basically about Elvis. Um, uh, and we're talking about this a little bit uh, before the thing. Uh, basically, how high were you when you agreed to do that? <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a kind of high. It's interesting, uh, but on different things. Um, funny origin to that. I had written uh, Mark Badger and I, a local artist, uh, had done a, another a mini series, three issue thing called Batman Jazz, where Batman enters the bebop world, and that was very just. We were into that stuff, and it seemed funny, and his art style made it work, and so that was very much a this weird sort of labor of love. Um, but then after that, uh, the one of the editor, one of the two Batman editors at the time, Archie Goodwin. Uh, to, wait, can, so does the, to, can the world's greatest detective also play a mean flugelhorn? No, he did. He did, though, discover that Charlie Parker didn't really die in 1955. He just went underground, and his, his brain <laughs> was, was still being out kept there. alive in Paraguay. <laughs> he was still out there somewhere. He shows up. Um, that actually was the main plot. This guy who they realize is, was the bird, and he'd just been in hiding and working on his chops all that time. Um, <laughs> But Archie uh, asked, why don't you do something about rock and roll? And I, was, I like a lot of rock, but I wasn't as in tune with it. Um, but the thing is, Archie was dying of cancer at the time. And it was clear that I was going to be one of his last projects. So there was this whole sort of, oh, I, I, can't, I would like to do this for Archie. Archie was really beloved. He was a sweet guy. Um, and his, he fought, he, was, he had cancer for last 10 years or so of his career. You know, he'd do chemo, he'd come back to the office. So it was kind of this, this chance to work with Archie, and I didn't want to say no to what he was asking for. And so I got a little out, maybe where I wasn't very strong, but it was certainly, a, you know, at that level, it was a really nice project. And Archie, I did, he lived to see my final script. I don't think he lived to see the final pro- uh, thing published, the final product. But anyway, so that's what Batman Fortunate Son is to me. It was sort of the Archie moment. Um, and I don't think it's that great a comic book. I think the artist, Gene Ha, did an incredible job. I was still fumbling. like what? I was like halfway there when I had to stop. And then I also made the mistake of making the guy too Elvis-like, so the, and then, but then the legal stuff started happening. So we had to make all these sort of weird little arbitrary changes to de-Elvisize him. So it's that kind of, it's just kind of a hodgepodge. And there's no 
either you're in Elvis land or not. There's no, like, that's 80% Elvis. Yeah, see, I could have maybe this is something. It, it, so it reads like a, like a bad Elvis. Um, you know, I think, it's, I think I did some pretty good stuff in it. But I think I, maybe, maybe I would have rethought it if I'd sat with it longer, frankly. Or if I'd been thinking about the legal. I wasn't thinking about the legal thing at all. Like, oh, I'm going to come up with this, and then I'm not going to really be able to do it. Right. So, because Elvis's estate was going to come after you or something? Yeah, I don't know that. I th- I think they were just so afraid of the possibility that it never even they never even checked. Basically, they just made us you know change it enough that they felt nobody sick. wrote the letter. Dear Presley Estate, can we? Can we? No. Which you know, it might have been interesting. Might have gotten a better response. You know? <laughs> uh, it, might have, it might have worked better than what we did. But I, I think what the problem was the D.C. legal department. Sometimes the you know the the various heads at these companies don't talk. Um, yeah. The hands don't know what they're doing, what the other's doing. So I think we went too far in editorial before we checked with legal. And then legal said, no, you have to change all these things. I'm surprised that they didn't think a fictionalized murderous sociopath king <laughs> was going to be a winning <laughs> proposition. I like, I like the basic idea still. Just needed to read, yeah. So uh, one of the comics that you wrote that I really liked uh, was El Diablo. Uh, there's a DC, uh, and, and I dug them out from my basement the other day. Uh, it, it ran a brief 16 issues, and uh, El Diablo is not particularly super at all in any way. Uh, but it, and I believe that, it, I, I'm sure you'll know, my impression at the time was that it was the only uh, crime-fighting story that was set along the border. Mm-hmm. And that was dealing with that context and border issues. Um, so I w- would love to hear more about how El Diablo came about and how you approached it. And okay, yeah, that's that's one of my favorite comics. I love that thing. Um, well, it started from an idea that they might want to do something with Latino culture because there were no comics touching on that. There were quite a few about Black Americans and quite a few about East Asia. Well, a handful about East Asians, but there was really nothing about. Mexicans and Central Americans, you know, uh, who were at that time obviously becoming a huge part of American culture more than ever before. This is like 89. Yeah, 88, 89. So they asked um, every Latino writer in the business if they and wanted to do both it. Both of them responded. They both said no. You stole my line. I was building to that exact line. They both said no. <laughs> it was actually, it was the Hernandez brothers. They, oh, Gilbert yeah. said no, and then Jaime said no. Um, and so then it was like the editor just picked somebody, and he... Uh, they got the next best thing, which was you. Which was me. <laughs> <laughs> they, well, then they decided, let's just go somebody new and interesting who might have a different spin. They didn't want to give it to the usual approach. And that's when I was... I had been doing this in, independent thing called The Trouble with Girls with my friend Will for a while, but I had not done any um, you know, Marvel DC stuff. And the editor knew of me somehow, or I forget, Brian Augustine. So he said, well, let's just do this. I mean, nobody knows who either of us are. And then he found an artist. Nobody knew who he was. So it was just this kind of, let's make this thing and see what happens. Um, and I was really pleased. It, it was fun. I mean, I had to do this stretch. I had to write this Mexican-American character. Um, but I, you know, when I tried very much to just get into the character and not think too much, okay, this is the ethnicity I'm supposed to be doing. Um, love the artist, um, sweet guy, and uh, good, great work. 
And so we, we and we kicked around. I think the I think the editor, I think Brian, came up with the idea of doing it in in South Texas. Um, you know, my inclination would have been to do West Coast, but he thought, no, there's a lot of there's a lot of good hot cultural, social, political stuff there. Um, maybe the edges were a little bit more raw. Uh, maybe both the whites and the Latinos were less assimilated, if you know what I mean. So that was his. So then I had to do a bunch of research and kind of came up with a pseudo-San Antonio. And, right, and so, so the story is it's set in a fictionalized San Antonio, and there's a guy who is a public defender who becomes the first Latino on this city council, on this border town, who uh, uh, be- becomes also, in his spare time, I guess, a vigilante, uh, relying on a bolo tie and some church-led boxing training that he had. Um, uh, he it, tried to keep it very funky, as sort of non-superhero as possible. I think Will Eisner's spirit was what we were mostly thinking about. Um, this was a character from the 40s who's who kind of the, the symbol of that kind of baggy, uh, ratty, unglamorous vigilante. And so, and so what was the process of researching that world like? Um, it was, it was, you know, this was sort of pre-internet, so I couldn't do the just sort of, you know, search, San Antonio. Um, uh, I did a fair amount of just looking things up, you know, books, magazines. Um, I did a lot of reading of what were at that time, there was this sort of these grassroots uh, Mexican-American stuff coming up, like Lowrider magazine, which had a lot of interesting material in it. You know, it's like, a, it's kind of about cars, and it's kind of about women in bikinis sitting on hoods of cars. But it was also, you know, there's all this really rich stuff about just the way people talk and what their daily lives were like. Um, so did a lot of that. Um, talked to Latino friends who were all sort of leery of the idea of me writing a comic book about a Mexican-American hero. But everybody seemed to think it was pretty good for what it was. Um, uh, but yeah, it was, I, it's funny you asked that because I had kind of forgotten what pre-internet research was like. You had to go out and walk around <laughs> and look for things and uh, learn things like the Dewey Decimal System. Yeah, and hold pieces of paper in your hand. It was yeah, it was kind of fun. How did we live for so long? <laughs> I'm Nato Green, and you're listening to the Nato Sessions, a co-production of 3200stories.org and the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more Gerard Jones. And so what was, in preparing this series, what was the thing that you learned about the border that was most shocking to you? Hmm. Well, the learning more about the whole the coyote trade, the whole moving running people across the border, I think was probably the biggest shock. I mean, I knew that existed, but the um, the brutality of it, both in terms of the border guards and the coyotes, and what happened to the people, um, was rougher than I, I think I anticipated. Um, the biggest surprise, though, in a way, and this is, I find that this keeps happening in my work, is um, getting more compassion and more into the heads of the people I thought I wouldn't like. 
as one of the main characters there is this old-time Democratic Paul left over from like the Lyndon Johnson days when basically Mexicans voted for whoever you paid them to vote for. At least that's his concept of how it worked. And I expected him to be more just the butt of ridicule. Um, but I don't know, he, he started to become a character. I started to get into the, the kind of old Anglo-Texan mentality a little bit more. And I sort of got, oh, yeah, okay, this is where these people are coming from. I know where my sympathies are, but I get who those people are, you know. Uh, your sympathies are not with them? Is that what you're saying? My sympathies are more with the immigrants, yeah. Uh, but yeah re- in rereading El Diablo, it reminded me some of the movie Lone Star. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and, and how they tried to, like, get the that sort of tri-racial soup there. Yeah, they wanted uh, to portray a place, a culture and a place, which was fun. I, uh, I, I wanted to, to pull something up. So this is on, in the last issue of El Diablo... Uh, at, you know, at the end of every issue, you you would respond to the letters and write some comments, and so this is this is your words from the last issue of, of El Diablo in January '91. Uh, 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 we're left we've left the comic book mainstream just about exactly where we found it over a year ago. Lots of obsessed, twisted crime fighters haunting the streets of urban hells that seem born of particularly timid middle class nightmares. Would you like to name names? <laughs> oh, <laughs> most Batman stories, except the ones with Charlie Parker in them. Um, it says, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting as you read that, that it's actually quite fun to think, or interesting, invigorating to think that the company let me run that. I mean, I was talking about their product. <laughs> uh, you know, right. So, you know, and uh, I like that. That was, a, that was a fun time in comics. Um, the ethic was really let's do something different, let's do something good, let's do something fun. You probably couldn't do that in a DC comic now. Go quite so, you know, acidly at the, you know, at their bread and butter. Right, at their main products. Yeah, yeah, so. Uh, And, well, and so what did you mean by uh, timid middle-class nightmares? Well, all right. I I was thinking about Frank Miller's Batman um, and the many things that spun out of Frank's Batman. Frank gets... Jumped on a lot. Frank did the um, the Dark Knight Returns back in the '80s, which is sort of what started the entire. He wasn't the first to do a dark, mean, gritty, violent Batman, but it, it's he really kicked off the you know the the intensity of it that we know. And um, he's really talented. I, I mean, he did some really really good stories, really interesting art, really shook some things up. But I do feel like his his starting place was always the middle class white guy terrified and angry because the world is slipping away from him and seeing everything around him as as dangerous and uncontrollable and um, striking, you know, so the fantasy is to just strike back violently against urban decay or whatever, you know, we're focusing mm. on. And I, it's not, I don't respond well, I don't respond to that particularly. Um, yeah, I like people and I like, I like seeing how things happen and how the world evolves. I like cities um, so, you know, that, that I was, I was a fairly sunny comic book writer. I think for the times, you know, I like to do kind of people being. Yeah, I mean, nice. going, you know, at the, I, I'm sort of curious about how you experienced it at the time, living through it. But as a reader, it felt like I, I feel like I encountered the Dark Knight and uh, the Watchmen at about the same time, mm-hmm. and it felt like 
this is totally different mm-hmm. uh, from mm-hmm. everything else that was happening. Uh, and it just it felt like there's a before and an after. Yeah, very much so. And those two came out right about the same time, I mean, almost simultaneously. So that was like this big, big shift. And then and Art Spiegelman did Mouse at about the same time. So uh, there was a just you know that sort of spinning comics off into literature, art, whatever there through Spiegelman, and then the Frank with the big, intense, um, violent, but you know actually fairly smart. I don't want to make it sound like Frank wasn't doing intelligent work. It's very intelligent work. It's just of a particular you know worldview. Um, so that you know that was very exciting, and then Alan Moore did these really intricate, all these kind of multi-layered, you know, what, what I guess what the kids now call meta storytelling, where it's sort of he's up above it at the same time that he's in it, and um, that was also very exciting. He, Alan was my favorite writer at that time. I really responded to that, you know, kind of intricate, self-deconstructing, to use a way overused term, uh, work. I mean, when when I read them at the time, and they sort of really resonated with my like adolescent angst, <laughs> and now going back and reading them, I sort of feel like like how bleak the world is seems sort of mm. adorable to me. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, there's some way I feel like you know that they pre- predicted this horrible, gritty nightmare, yes. and the future that we have arrived in is sort of both like much less. Vile and at the same time more terrifying to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Funny. Well, it was funny too because it was actually happening. Uh, um, they were in a way behind. I mean, Frank had arrived in. I don't. I don't want to oversimplify a man's life narrative, but he, as a young guy from uh, rural New England, I, I think he was from New Hampshire, um, arriving in New York, young kid, uh, and this is in the depths of the '70s when New York was, you know. Was, Pretty, pretty crime-ridden. The infrastructures were kind of breaking down. A little bit punk rock. Yeah, and I think he ended up in the East Village. The East Village was, was not chic at that time. Um, he got mugged a couple times really early. So he kind of had this, you know, that classic um, dystopic vision of the American city coming out of that. But really, by the time these things were coming out, say in 86, the whole, you know, the New York turnaround had been happening, and the, the you know the the revamping of Times Square was starting to roll and so he he was sort of writing about a vision of the American city that we were already no longer seeing and that 's when you know white flight was reversing itself, and suddenly the cities were becoming more gentrified, and the lower income people were moving to the suburbs you know so he was kind of he was like about ten years after uh, what he had actually experienced if, if you know what i mean um, but Somehow that struck a chord. I think it, I think maybe it's because all of us sort of uh, the the mass audience was beginning to catch up with that vision. You know, we were sort of starting to like it, get used to it, but at the same time maybe not find it so threatening. I think as people found real cities less frightening, the fantasy dystopia was easier to take. It wouldn't seem like so nauseatingly actual. It was moved into. I was uh, nightmare. I was in New York a bunch last year, and the uh, you know, Frank Miller wrote a big arc on, in Daredevil, which is set in Hell's Kitchen, which mm-hmm. at the time, you know, in that context, is this crime-ridden, you know, uh, squalid area, and now is quite posh. Mm-hmm. And so I, I sort of always had, had started having this fantasy about someone writing like a like a, a story about a 
you know, er, hard-boiled urban crime fighter who is essentially gentrified out of a job. Mm. Um, and how Batman and Daredevil and Spider-Man would no longer have crime to fight because of gentrification. Yeah, go to a lot of off-Broadway plays. You Cracked know. out on some, some double parking. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, yep, have to go to Queens, I guess. Um, but, so the, um, the, the one thing I wanted to ask you about, cause, partly because I'm interested and partly because we're all sponsored by the, by the JCC, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Spider-Man is practically a Jewish name. Like, if you met Herschel Spider-Man, you wouldn't bat an eye. Yeah. Uh, no, they almost and, all, you know, really. You know, Spider-Man... Say, say with the right lilt. Yeah. Right, yeah. It's Spider-Man, Superman, uh, 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 you know, Batman. as my, uh, you know, uh, he's smart, no one likes him, and he feels like he has to save the world, which is basically the Jewish experience. Um, <laughs> so, you know, what is, why are, why are Jews... And the same with the, with the X-Men and, the, and Superman. And why, sort of why, you know, Superman's, all the Krypton names are Hebrew names, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of growing up as a Jewish boy, at least, is like parsing yourself in these superhero characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and so w- why are Jews so good at telling the stories that America needs to hear? Mm-hmm. And will it make mm-hmm. them ever like us? Um, I think people... Like Jews way more than they used to, on the whole. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's always a little forward and back thing going on, but uh, but yeah, um, it's an interesting one because actually I'm kind of confronting that in different ways. Let me do a little self promotion here because it's actually relevant to what we're talking about. Um, one a book that I'm wrapping up is called The Undressing of America, which is sort of about the battle between the old Victorian culture of concealment and the 20th century culture of, of, sort of willful exposure um, through the, the, a couple of particular people, a big censor named Anthony Comstock and a publisher named Bernard McFadden. Um, and one of the things, though, I am seeing there that I'm kind of looking at is the, the this kind of initial arrival of the East European Jews and the way they found their way in. Um, it's a guy named Saul Bloom who kind of brought the the belly dance and the, the hoochie-coochie to America, um, and then, you know, sort of from there on. And then, just to, just to sort of kind of cover all the things I want to uh, pitch, um, I'm starting a book uh, that's a biography of the guy who actually founded DC Comics, whose name was uh, Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson, who was not Jewish. That was not a pseudonym. Um, and I'm, I'm writing it with his granddaughter, which is fun. But he's this sort of interesting, very waspy presence in the midst of that, you know, very Jewish business. So that I'm looking at that too. It's like, okay, what's this guy doing here? And yet he seemed very important. And so um, it's an it's a let's just say it's a topic that's on me. Um, well, one thing that I'll say, especially about comics and this other sort of these sort of geekier, less mainstream forms, because comics used to be. Much more geek, I and mean, they're more, way more mainstream now. But they, they definitely came up through that geek fringe. Is I think if you're that kind of pop culture fan, you're already in that half outside place, that sort of half assimilated, half excluded. You're brainy. You know the. You know you. You know the. Your smarts are probably what are going to get you forward, but you're kind of odd. And you have to kind of watch what you say. You kind of have to smooth it out and mainstream it a little bit. And so I think even, you know, I was uh, this very, uh, very non-Jewish kid 
in the suburbs, um, Los Gatos, California. I mean, it's, you know, you can't get much more goyish than that. Back then, Silicon, the whole Silicon Valley thing has changed Los Gatos, but I mean, it was, it was so... I'm not even allowed in white Los Gatos these yeah. days. <laughs> so, they, um, they give me a temporary foreskin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, we, uh, I, I responded really well to this stuff, this Stanley, Jack Kirby, Julius Schwartz work. And I think there was something there. I mean, I think that, you know, um, the, the whole sort of the, the East European immigrant, son of immigrant Jewish sensibility spoke to all these nerdy kids in different ways. Um, this other stuff, too, because then you deal with like Irving Berlin and the fact that those same people and, and the movies, Hollywood, you know, this, those were not aimed at little nerdy subcultures, but those two were fields that, that Jews did really well in. I can talk about that if you want, but it's not so much about my work right now. So. Well, I mean, it's it, one of the in, in, in Men of Tomorrow. One of the things that's so interesting to me about that story is that is that there's basically a straight line that runs from, you know, Jews just after the turn of the century in the Lower East Side of Manhattan and trade unions and the mob mm-hmm. and anarchists, straight all the way through to AOL Time Warner. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, uh, very much through the comic book business. It's a very interesting line. That was one of the most fun parts. I kind of knew going into the book the whole story of who created what. It was that um, all that bootlegging money, Meyer Lansky, uh, the way they were involved in the publishing and distribution early, and then basically ended up creating Time Warner. Um, I don't know if I'm going to get too much into picking through things, but but Time Warner was essentially built out of the old Meyer Lansky organization. And you know, you can track the people very clearly. Um, and then Time Warner absorbed DC Comics, which had in turn come from, you know, sort of Jewish bootlegger created businesses too. Well not not created by them, because that's my new book, but it would taken over by those people. Um, and again Lansky keeps he, he just and Frank Costello, those two guys keep showing up. It's 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 so it's so fascinating. And sort of when you think about the the history of comics uh, and the and the kind of nodes of innovation, like we as as readers are aware of the arc of the the innovation on the creative side, mm-hmm. and how do you think about sort of the balance of creative innovation versus technological innovation versus sort of corporate economic innovation? Yeah. yeah. Well, that too. I mean, Men of Tomorrow was very educational for me um, because I had come up from hearing the stories told by creators. In, in comics, the, the, the whole oral history used to be from the artists and writers and to an extent from the editors. And nobody, the people on the business end just didn't talk about it. Nobody asked them, actually. The fans all wanted to talk to their favorite writers. They didn't want to talk to some you know, vice president. In charge of distribution. Um, Why? No one ever wants to talk to an accountant. No, but uh, they turned out to be really interesting people. And that's, again, it was this sort of finding some compassion for them because the story of comics creators is not very happy in the old days. Um, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, who created Superman, did get screwed by, by the publisher. Um, but at the same time, the more I went back into it, I saw how they had also set themselves up to be screwed. Um, and how the publishers at, at this time, who were Harry Donenfeld and Jack Leibowitz, um, a salesman and an accountant, how they saw what they were doing as just what you do. It seemed reasonable to them. And these 
kids, these Luft mentioned, who just didn't know how the world worked, they got what was coming to them. I mean, what do you expect? So I get, you know, getting into that side was really interesting to me. And, I, and the thing that has to be said is no matter how clever... If, so if I can cross-promote, as mm-hmm. also with the JCC, I've made these uh, videos uh, related to the Loaded series about Jews and money. And in the second video, I talked to Jews about sort of what you, what, what you would do for a deal. And one of the people in it says exactly this. He says... Look, you know, if you, if you once you enter the the field of battle of of negotiation and mm-hmm. transaction, as long as uh, as long as everybody's above board, you get what you get. Mm-hmm. We're and all that, adults here. Was, yeah, and that was the ethic. And I think to a great extent, it's, I think it's true to a great extent that these dreamy writers and artists thought things thought the world was going to accommodate itself to them, and they didn't really do their homework. Um, and, but it's, you know, no matter how brilliant Superman was as a creation, it needed people to publish and distribute it. It would not have, you know, I don't think it would have just gone from the page to to general acclaim without that. And so, you know, this this respect, it's, it's hard for people in creative fields to have respect for the business people. But, you know, they do make it happen. They do get the thing out there. Would you say that the real superheroes don't wear spandex? I would say the real <laughs> I'm Nato Green, and you're listening to the Nato Sessions, a co-production of 3200stories.org and the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. We'll be back with more Gerard Jones in a minute. And we're standing in a comic book store at 20th and Mission. Is this your store? Yeah, this is Mission Comics and Art. Um, I've had it for about three and a half years. Um, started it brand new, and yeah. And what what is the like? A, like a lot of independent bookstores have sort of fallen victim to Borders and Barnes and Noble and Amazon. What's the fate of the independent comic book store? Um, I think it's quite good. I think you know people, particularly for comics, people want to be able to browse and see it and touch it and look at it and. You know, you can, if you know exactly what you want, you know, you can find it on the internet cheaper. But often, you know, people want to browse and, and find out other things. And, you know, a nice curated comic book store is invaluable. Is there any kind of community of people that have come together here in the physical space of the store? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's been a, it's definitely a sort of community touch point, partly with the art gallery that I do. And I also do a comic book creators meetup group every month. Um, and actually, behind us, there's a reporter for the Mission Local doing a, an interview with a local creator, um, and they're meeting here and as a community touch point. So. And uh, could you show us just something on the on the racks that you particularly lo- are loving right now? Um, probably the best book coming out right now is Saga. Uh, by Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples. Um, the tagline on it is kind of um, Star Wars meets Romeo and Juliet with more sex and more swearing. That sounds like a winning combination. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, the protagonists are a couple with a newborn baby. They're both deserters from opposing armies, and they're on the run from crazy assassins. So, Romeo and Juliet, but not with children. Right, right, yeah. Nobody's committing suicide. They're not that foolish. <laughs> There's all sorts of crazy stuff in it. 
<laughs> you know, giant heads with legs and no genitalia. No. So I'm sort of curious about, and this, uh, you know, to the extent that the, the undressing of America also sort of deals with with the mass print, can comics sort of coexist as both mass culture and art? Uh, like, you know, there's, I, I feel like some of the, the, the what's behind what, you know, the, the serious stuff in comics and also uh, things like, you know, Persepolis and Mouse is like getting comics to be taken more seriously mm-hmm. as an art form. Uh, and does, how, does that work? Is it important? Well, I think that's where the word graphic, the phrase graphic novel came from um, because people weren't sure how to combine these two. I've had a lot of people ask me, well, what's the difference between them? Or they're surprised I've done things that are called both. Um, or people who maybe coming from fine art or literature say they want to do graphic novels but are kind of appalled when you call them comics. Uh, so I think that it kind of creates a conceptual framework. So, oh, these are two different things. They just happen to be virtually identical in the way the story is told. Uh, now, the people like Art Spiegelman is very clear that he's doing comics. Uh, he'll use the word graphic novel as kind of a format description, but he's, he's a comics guy, um, which I like. And th- these are the people who came from comics and made it more artful will say that. The people who are kind of coming in from the outside, I think, like to say graphic novel. Um, they are the same form. There's a lot of talent flow back, you know, back and forth flow. Um, in Europe, the, the two are essentially the same. But I think because that word comics is so lowbrow and it's so wrong. <laughs> I, I, I have a personal stake in your answer to this question as, right. as a comic. Oh, In comic. a different genre, but... Yeah. Know. Well, that's, yeah, that's another... It's the same word that means two entirely different art forms there. But, uh, but yes, they can coexist, but I can see why people have come up with another phrase to, to make it easier to hold them both in their heads. Well, we have it with comics and performance artists. Ah, you know performance what I mean? artists, yes. The ones who aren't as funny. Yeah. Um, but they get grants. Right. Do you exactly. get grants? No. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's, 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 Graphic it's, novels get grants. It's a, it's a pet peeve of mine that comedians mm-hmm. don't get grants mm-hmm. because funders are like, well, what is your impact? Well, you don't fucking mm-hmm. know. I tell jokes, people laugh. Like, <laughs> um, uh, it, the, um, the, the, in the last year, there's been some sort of big landmarks in, in the comic books, like mm-hmm. the first Arab Green Lantern, mm-hmm. the first gay marriage in comic books, uh, which was North Star. Uh, who is both a mutant and a Quebec separatist? So he's sort he's of a—they're really piling on. It. <laughs> it's, a little much. It's uh, it's a, what do they call it? It's a hat on a hat on that mm-hmm. guy. But um, so like he was a million years ago. He was the first gay kiss. One of the two participants in the first gay kiss in comics, as well. So Northstar is always kind of a—he's like Marvel's chosen, you know, trailblazer. I think. Right. So what do you like? You know, and, and I mean, what you're talking about, El Diablo, but having a Latino superhero and like. Uh, sort of what do you see as like comic books as a place to like play out hit social, the, the historic moment and political questions and advance ideas of inclusion and, and things like that? I think, it's, I think they, they do their part. Um, I think ever since around 1970, when comics were trying to get sort of relevant to the youth culture, that's been, there's been a, um, a pressure within the business to kind of try to stay on top of things, to you know, do a few things that are sort of ripped from today's headlines, and um, 
And I think that the, the, as with most pop culture and most sort of culture that's shaped by people who are somewhat outsider-ish, um, the sympathy is for, you know, the new or the formerly forbidden or the, you know, the, the downtrodden or the outcast. So they have the, you know, they, they have, I don't know that they have the kind of impact that uh, TV or movies have. But, you know, I think for a kid, for if you're a 13-year-old comics fan and you see that and you have to think, okay, X-Men, gay marriage, they go together somehow, that's um, moving them a step closer to something. Um. And, and then, sort of after you got out of comic books, you started writing, you wrote this stuff that was somewhat controversial, that uh, uh, arguing that violent fantasy play is okay. Uh, I, I know it's, it's a bit past for you, but could you sort of recap that ar- argument as, yeah. it, as the NRA has been trying to regulate that instead of yeah. guns? Well, that keeps coming. I'm still on, I want to say I'm, I'm on Rolodexes. Nobody uses Rolodexes, but metaf- I'm on the metaphorical Rolodexes of, of uh, a lot of journalists. Because after, I, I, think, this, I think a lot of journalists still use Rolodex. Do they still? Which okay, is why the press is dying. <laughs> but, um, but so yeah, because I still get, I still do interviews, uh, radio interviews, and things on that stuff. So that's still there. The basic, my really really basic argument is, um, we need to respect people's fantasy. We need to respect other people's feeling and thinking. And adults will do their. I was mostly talking about children in this book, Killing Monsters, mostly talking about kids. Adults will do their kids a much greater service by empathizing and having some compassion and letting kids have their own emotional and mental lives. Um, And then, you know, providing guidance and limits, but not editing and scripting their kids' interests and their kids' fantasies, you know, and that we've developed this this sense of taboo around um, violent make-believe that's coming from a very anxious adult place that is not at all um, in tune with where the fantasies are coming from for kids. And so basically, you know, I, th- I think that kids will always go f- have, they will like violent play to an extent and they'll like some violent entertainment to an extent because it helps them process a lot of what they're feeling and seeing and hearing. And bringing a bunch of adult anxiety to that, you know, oh my God, you're going to become a killer, is, is not helpful to their developmental process. So, okay, so here's my question about that. Because I, mean, I, I, sort of, I totally get it about, you're not, you're, I don't, this is so you don't become a killer. But there's something short of you becoming a killer, right? Mm-hmm. Like, clearly there's some relationship between the content of the cultural products that we consume and the values and politics that we end mm-hmm. up having, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That you, that when we see, when we consume entertainment that has a whole variety of creepy depictions of women's bodies, we end up with a bunch of creepy ideas about women's bodies, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and same with portrayals of Arabs or whatever, you know? Right. Uh, and so there's some relationship between how it affects us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I, def- I, I do strongly um, advocate people talking about this stuff and parents helping kids make sense of it and processing it if there are parents able and willing to do that. Um, and I'm definitely very much in favor of the culture as a whole talking about it. So there's, not, so there's some counterbalance. Um, but uh, I, what, where I think it gets problematic is if we get into too much of this kind of suppressive anxiety reaction 
Um, because it is interesting how often people, instead of just talking about that, they do go to the, oh, is it making them killers? You know, there's this, you can see the anxiety spike coming up. And I don't want to talk people out of having concerns about it and dealing with the messiness of it, but I do want to suggest that people not go to this completely reactive place or go to this completely sort of, say, theoretical place. Like, we don't like violence, therefore we don't like violence in any context. And we're going to try to do this kind of black and white, you know, slicing and dicing of our fantasy lives. When I, when I was a little boy, I was, I was into violent play, you know, and fantasy stuff. And uh, my mom went to hear a talk from, by Bruno Bettelheim. Mm. And she said, you know, I can't, I'm a pacifist and a feminist and my son is into guns and all this stuff. You know, what do I do? And Bruno Bettelheim berated her in front of this audience and said, you know, when you reject his his fantasy play, you're rejecting your son and communicating that you don't love him. And she came home and told me that story, and I said, I will kill that guy. (laughs) (laughs) It's a complicated relationship. Love, violence, fantasy, it's messy. Yeah, I love that. Bettelheim was a piece of work. He was a really, he was a strange guy, yeah. I mean, ultimately on the right side, I suppose, but anyway. So, and I think the last comic that you wrote was Carabella. Yeah, that was for that was for a nonprofit. Uh, that was actually a web comic. Um, it was privacy activism, in sort of in concert with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and it was kind of messy. I mean, it didn't. It was it was written to some extent by committee. I mean, I'm I'm the writer of record, but um, when you're doing a nonprofit with a group, there's a lot of voices in the room. Um, we were trying to do a story about basically about the risks of this kind of wide-open um, surrender of all privacy and personal rights in the Internet. Um, but we're also trying to make it entertaining, especially to kids. So it was, a, yeah, it, was a, it was a fun project. I don't really want to do that again. I don't think I want to do that kind of committee-driven work again. Is that, um, is that an issue that you care about? I'm no. not on, quite on the same um, side as, as, as the group entirely. Um, that this get, you know we can get into a lot of things. I actually think that the general trend of our culture toward greater and greater exposure and transparency is a good thing at a sort of a larger cultural level. But then you have to separate out issues like people stealing your data for nefarious reasons and you know how to how to protect yourself and so. But it was so what it was kind of a messy. I mean, are we just, are we telling kids? Be careful how much information you put on Facebook. Are we telling people, you know, read the, the terms and conditions before you click that box? Um, you know, there was a kind of a, what is this about? And Which was interesting because that debate is, is still very uh, nascent. You know, people are still trying to figure out what do we even mean by privacy versus non-privacy. Yeah, I mean, I just I sort of, you know, I, I wrestle with it a lot, and I just feel like people shouldn't say anything on the Internet that they wouldn't say if they thought they might get punched in the face. <laughs> and I feel like there should be some amount of just punching people in the face for things that they say on the Internet, just in the sake of restoring civility to the world. Well, it does help, you know, yeah. In the face-to-face discourse, it does help to know people react, and they, and they can see you. you know. The uh, Internet, that whole anonymity thing is tricky. Uh, do we want to do questions? Um, you, you mentioned that in, in Las Garas that you, were, you said a very non-Jewish kid. But here tonight you quite comfortably used a number of uh, Yiddish expressions, Jewish expressions, 
and understood mm -hmm. the sensibility, it seemed mm -hmm. to me, very well. How did you get from the one state to the other? Yeah. Um, well, I'm moving, moving to the bigger city and getting to know people with different groups has helped. I mean, I got a lot of Jewish friends. Um, but then also, it does seem like so much of the culture I'm interested in, uh, comics, jazz, old movies, uh, popular music, these, it's all these Jewish forms. And it seems like at some point or other, I'm always looking up how these things happen. Yeah. All the Jewish forms. Because <laughs> I do want to say about jazz, you know, it's primarily uh, a black form, but the Jews have had a huge piece of that, you know, from very early. So... Um, I guess just, yeah, re listening, researching, talking to people, um, you soak things up. I'm glad I'm using Yiddish reasonably well. <laughs> it's always risky, you know, you go off into that, you can really sound like an idiot. Um, but, uh, but, yeah. I was wondering if either of you have suggestions or thoughts about better words um, than graphic novel to describe a comic book that is too complicated for kids or is merely intelligent? You know, it was, I was researching once that there was a lot, years there were, in the late 60s, early 70s, all, everybody in comics was trying to find better words and, um, you know, graphic novel, graphic narrative. Graphic popped up a lot, you know. Um, sequential art. Sequential art, thank you. That's the one I was groping for. Um, Trying to translate the French bande dessinée, which I guess basically means designed strip. Um, and, but I, I think graphic novels, actually, it's, it's okay. I mean, it'll do. I call them comics. I think they're all comics. Uh, it's just one of those cases where there's a weird old you know, misnomer that's still on them. But I, I'm fine with that. But uh, if you're going to try to make them sound, you know, we may as well stick with the things people understand. It seems like graphic novels kind of dug in now. So even though a lot of them aren't novels, I mean, they're different lengths and forms and a lot of more open-ended. But it sounds serious. You got any? Uh, no. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'm sort of in the camp of, like, that the fight, to, you know, to me the fight is to get people to take seriously the whole universe of things that could be called comics, and just because it comes from humble origins, we shouldn't try to fancify it mm -hmm. uh, to, to get yeah. people to take it more seriously. Uh, thanks, Gerard. Thank you. The NATO Sessions is a co-production of the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco and its online venue, 3200stories.org. David Kwan edits and produces the program, and Dan Wolf is the executive producer. Our theme music is by DJ Real. I'm your host, NATO Green. Follow me on Twitter at NATO Green. Check out my stand-up comedy at The Business every Wednesday night at the Darkroom Theater in the Mission District. For more information about the NATO Sessions and to receive new episodes as they become available, go to 3200stories.org. Thanks for listening.